stocks, bonds, ETFs, straight out of downtown Chicago. This is Zach's Market Edge. Welcome to Zach's Market Edge, the podcast about investing in your life. I'm your host, Tracy Reinick, and this week I'm joined by Zach stock strategist David Boren, who is also the editor of the Zach's Marijuana Innovator newsletter, to discuss what is going on with the marijuana stocks, cannabis, whatever you want to call them. They seem to be really hot suddenly when they were not for a while there. What's going on? What are we supposed to do with these stocks here? Is it election uh, reasonings behind this or something else just going on in the industry? I brought David on because he's our expert. So welcome, David. Hey, thanks for having me. So I only noticed because I noticed that the stocks like started surging suddenly and specifically in the last like week or two weeks, we've seen some big, you know, up moves. What what is underlying like this sudden burst, at least in some of these? I noticed it with Canopy Growth. I think Kronos Group is also up pretty big. Um, I don't know. Aurora was down big, I know, off of its earnings, but now it too started to turn up a bit in the last couple sessions. So is there something going on with the growers in particular that, you know, is is underlying this big surge? Uh, I think that it, it is definitely uh, politically motivated. It's because of uh, recent changes in polling and people's expectations for the U.S. elections next month. Um, I, I think right now the Canadian growers are really the only pure play marijuana stocks that trade on the major exchanges in the U.S. So if there's going to be enthusiasm about the uh, industry as a whole, it's going to get funneled to that small number of names, um, most of which you mentioned because there just simply aren't that many other choices trading on the NASDAQ or the NYSE. Um, so, and I'd also like to say that, you know, of course, I, I run a long portfolio of marijuana stocks. Yeah. And so I like any any rallies, great, but I'm going to temper my own enthusiasm about this one a little bit simply because we're really rallying off some very, very low levels. Yeah. Uh, it's, most of these stocks have been sliding um, basically nonstop for almost two years. So. Yeah. Uh, this, this, I call this rally nascent. Uh, it's cause for a little bit of optimism, but uh, we got a long way to go to even just to make back uh, where we were not that long ago. Okay. But what is the enthusiasm about the election then? Is it about state initiatives? Is it about the federalization aspect of it? Why has suddenly everybody seen, you know, getting excited? Uh, well, that's interesting. Uh, so as far as state initiatives, uh, we are going to see six initiatives from five different states uh, that are on the ballots right now. People are early voting on as we speak. Um, but they're, those are relatively limited, uh, especially in terms of the amount of population that will be affected, especially by the recreational initiatives. It's just okay. not very many people. So it's smaller states then that are doing it? It's not. Sure. So we have Arizona and New Jersey. Those are relatively large states. But then uh, South Dakota, Montana, and Mississippi, uh, all with fairly small populations. Now, and I'll get to the South Dakota one in a minute because that's actually the, probably the most interesting part. Um, but so I, my expectation at the beginning of 2020 was that we were going to have somewhere between 10 and 20 initiatives on the ballot in November. And wow. unfortunately, due to the pandemic, in all the places where the, the law is that you have to get physical signatures to put a referendum on the ballot, 
yeah. uh, or a referendum-like initiative, whatever you call it in various states. That became basically impossible in most places. You cannot stand outside the supermarket with your clipboard collecting signatures. No. Uh, so we've seen a, a much smaller crop of ballot initiatives than I was originally hoping for. Okay, that's also interesting. Um, what about where we stand with a lot of the states having already passed that? Are we at 25 states? Are we at over the 50% level, at least on the uh, medicinal side, maybe not the recreation yet? Like, sure. have, we, have we reached critical mass on the state level? Uh, I would say that we are getting very close to critical mass. Okay. Uh, so just sort of off the top of my head, I think that recreational uh, states that have recreationally legal marijuana sales are just under 100 million people in population. Uh, obviously, California is the biggest with 40 million. Uh, we just picked up Illinois in the last election cycle. So that's 13 more. Uh, and then a lot of the smaller states. So just under 100 million for recreational and at least some medicinal legality, we are virtually at two thirds of the US population. Wow. Um, the medicinal initiatives seem to have very little problem passing, even in places that, uh, that you might have guessed weren't um, necessarily the most enthusiastic about progressive ballot measures. Yeah. So we're, I, I believe we're getting to critical mass, getting that recreational to half or more of the population. So we're talking about 50 or 60 million more people, that's really, I think, going to be a, a tipping point for, it just looks silly then to not have it be federally legal when more than half of the country has made it legal at the state level. Right. By population. So what is the, is there enthusiasm then for the federal legalization after this election cycle? And what would that mean? What would that take to get that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's been very interesting, especially just over the past week. Some of the boosts that we've seen over the past week is reported to have been because Senator Harris, uh, in the vice presidential debates, pretty unequivocally said that she and Joe Biden, if elected, would push immediately for marijuana decriminalization. Yeah. Um, now that's that's complicated because it, it although it it seemed to give the industry a boost, my personal opinion is that maybe people aren't paying close enough attention to what that means, be um, in terms of the investability, having, having a, a stable of companies who are in the business that you can invest in. Decriminalization would technically mean that it's no longer illegal to possess marijuana. Uh, Low-level possession crimes would never even be prosecuted. It may include some amount of home cultivation or small levels of cultivation, but it doesn't really provide any sort of framework for having a big business that would grow, distribute, and sell marijuana, and on which taxes could be collected. So to me, when I heard decriminalization, that took a little bit of the wind out of my sails. I wanna hear legalization. I wanna hear that this is going to be a totally legal and sensibly regulated industry, and then we can have dozens or 100 companies to choose from who seem to be rising to the top of their game, uh, as opposed to simply not doing the criminal convictions anymore. Right, that's a good distinction. Okay, so let's just say, you know, nothing happens on the federal level, but we continue to have these states doing their thing. Um, what companies does that benefit the most? I feel like it would be innovative 
uh, industrial properties, the only REIT that's out there investing in the medicinal side of these companies that are doing the medicine side. And, you know, they keep adding states, I've noticed, over, over the last year or two. A couple of years ago, they used to be in like 11 states. I think they're in at least like 16 states. They have properties now. And I noticed in September, they made a really big purchase in Florida. Um, they only paid $19.6 million for it, but they're investing a bunch more money for $56 million total in a, a sounds like a big partnership in Florida. And these shares are hitting new all-time highs now. So is it something like innovative industrial properties that, you know, is really going to benefit as these states continue to, uh, at least on the medicinal side or the recreational, continue to do their thing? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's, a, that's a great point and a great pick. Right now, innovative, innovative industrial properties is the closest thing that we have to a U.S.-based pure play stock. Uh, and so I, I'm glad that you mentioned the investment aspect. Most of their deals, and I believe they have 51, two, three properties, something like that now, low 50s. Most of their deals have been where they uh, bought the actual piece of raw property, uh, which could include you know, real estate land and buildings. And then they invest a pretty significant amount of uh, tenant improvements to make the property more productive for the people who are going to produce marijuana. Yeah. Now what that sent, and then they charge rates for the leases because they have taken a property and invested all this money in improving it and making it more efficient. They charge rents that are somewhere between two and four times what typical commercial real estate leases would look like. Okay. Uh, and they have excellent, very low vacancy rates, virtually zero vacancy rate, uh, virtually zero defaults on the lease monies that they're owed. So they, they have sort of made themselves into a publicly traded U.S. company that doesn't themselves touch the plant, so they're totally legal uh, and can be listed on the exchanges, but who has a direct interest in the expansion of marijuana production facilities. Uh, and as far as I can tell, that's going to keep happening. So in, in the scenario you were describing where marijuana remains illegal at the federal level, whether or not it's decriminalized, for the purposes of investment, IIPR will probably remain the fastest growing and most uh, most pure investment in a U.S. marijuana company. So why do you think it's so little followed on Wall Street? Not by those of us, you know, who are average investors, but by the actual analysts. Is it is it solely because it is in the REIT category and there just aren't that many analysts on the REITs? Because I think like Zach's, we only have one or maybe two analysts on it or something. Like why, why do you think that is that? Nobody, nobody's covering it or very well. I, I, this is just complete conjecture on my part, but I think that it's, it's stigma. Uh, okay. So if you simply look at IRPR as a REIT uh, and ignore what their concentration area is in terms of tenants and facilities, it's just a really good performing REIT. Yeah. Uh, it's even, even after the run up, this is still a 3% yielder right. um, in a, a time when T bonds are earning 70 basis points. Yeah. So, and with a very consistent and a dividend that they raise virtually every quarter. So yeah. just from an income perspective, regardless of what, what their business is, I think it should be a, a popular investment, period. Yeah. Now, if you add in the fact that there's this sort of 
I can see a year or two or more of continued ramping up of acquiring properties that where they raise money in the public markets, they, they tend to do equity offerings fairly consistently, uh, one or two a year for their for recent memory. So they raise money in the public markets, they invested in new properties, and then they get a great yield on those properties, and they return the vast majority of that money to the investors in the form of a cash dividend. Just a great investment. What You could take the marijuana part out of it, it's still a great REIT. Yeah. Um, so, and then add add the ramp up of them being able to continue to sort of, you know, I, I was going to use the word pyramid, but that gets a bad rap, but that's what they're doing. They're pyramiding on the success that they've had by adding new properties and then making consistently high profits on everything that they own. So yeah, IIPR is, uh, is definitely one of my favorites in that scenario. Okay. Let's switch over to what's happening on the food and beverage side, because I feel like there's more going on there now than when we last talked. So I saw an article come across here in Illinois about how we're about to get some weed infused beverages by by next summer. And it's going to be acreage holdings that's going to make it and distribute it because they have the licenses through Canopy Growth which is also in partnership with Constellation Brands, if this makes any sense to everyone. Um, sure. So I was surprised to see this and I was like, oh, they're finally coming out with some kind of beverages. It's gonna contain the THC. I think it's non-alcoholic and they're also gonna ro roll it out in California. So it's Illinois and California are getting these weed and feed beverages. I don't know why they chose both of us. I can see why they chose California, but I'm not sure why only Illinois um, but this seems like a promising area that we've been told was coming for several years, but it sounds like it's finally about to get here. Uh, yes, uh, you, you're, you're correct. I, I believe that that's also a growth area. I'm going to have one caveat uh, at the end of that, um, which is probably going to, uh, it's going to sound a little funny to you, but I, I, I do have one concern about edibles and beverages. But okay. for people who, one of my concerns has been the continued survival of the black markets in a lot of places. I'm a little confused about the fact that someone would continue doing something that's illegal, that subjects them to criminal liability, uh, where they get a product of unknown quality, quantity, purity, et cetera, uh, even if it's a few bucks cheaper because you don't pay the cash. Uh, the convenience of walking into a store and buying exactly what you want uh, in a very predictable format to me seems to massively outweigh, should massively outweigh the small cost savings of the black market. So I think that the people who have been used to using the black market and buying smokable flour for years or decades yeah. remain comfortable with it and they'll keep going with their old source uh, to save a little bit of money. The new customers, I think, are much more interested in getting a beverage, an edible, something you don't put in your lungs, with a very precise dose and effect. Uh, specifically, I know a lot of people and have heard huge anecdotal evidence that a lot of professionals and even seniors use a very small amount of THC and or CBD at night to relax and go to sleep. Okay. So that's a <laughs> that market is potentially everyone, right? They're not particularly yeah. interested in being hugely impaired right. by THC. They just want the, a, a slight relaxation effect and a better night's sleep. So that's huge. Yeah. Now here's the caveat I mentioned. The amounts that people take in terms of THC and CBD dosage for that purpose are very, very small. Uh, so for THC, it might be 
somewhere between one and five milligrams. Uh, CBD might be higher, uh, five, 10, 15 milligrams. In terms of the total weight of product required, of raw product, flour product, to create those drinks and beverages, it pales in comparison to the amount of THC that the people who smoke dried flour consume. Okay. So while the beverages and edibles, I believe, are going to have a very, very wide appeal. I mean, they already have a wide appeal, and it's only growing. For all sorts of people who had never purchased a marijuana product before it became legal and they could walk into a store and do it, the total volume that they're going to consume is going to be a, remain a relatively small percentage of the total volume consumed, period. Okay. So, so I, uh, I, while I'm excited about the prospect of the drinks and edibles, I'm a little concerned that that's never going to get to the sort of scale or it's going to take a long time to get to the sort of scale that dried flower sales are. Okay. But for those who are making the drinks, like a Constellation in conjunction with Canopy, um, the margins could be pretty good on something like that. Yeah, and I, I think that the... The Constellation Canopy acreage relationship, uh, as confusing as it is, especially because of this sort of optionality of the Canopy acreage deal and the creation of new classes of shares recently uh, to sort of smooth that deal over, the, it's, it's, a, it's a very natural powerhouse combination of a company that has huge experience in bringing beverages to market and distributing them successfully and branding them in a way that allows them to maintain solid gross margins, even in what could be a commoditized business. Then a marijuana producer who can produce the raw materials to make those beverages. And then acreage, if it's sort of the last piece, if, that, if we get federal legalization and that acreage deal gets done, they're going to become part of Canopy essentially immediately, I believe. I don't know exactly what the, the time frame would be on simply the mechanics of making the deal happen. But we get federal legalization, acreage and canopy is a done deal. And now they have a very effective distribution and retail system inside the United States. So yeah, that, that one, two, three punch could be significant, very successful going forward if a few things fall into place. Okay. So the last time we talked, Aurora Cannabis was one of your favorites, but then they just had that earnings report. Shares are down 31% in the last month off of that earnings. What do you think now with Aurora? Do you still like it? What, what, what should investors be looking for with Aurora right now? I'm a little concerned about Aurora uh, because they produce a lot of raw material. And I mean, a, a real lot, a high, a high quantity of raw material. Uh, and I believe that the, um, while the cost of production is going down, the cost of sale is dropping at the same time, or the, or the proceeds from sales are dropping at the same time. And so this feels to me to be a little bit of a race to the bottom. Now, it's not, we've never seen this industry before. So everything that I say with regard to what's going to happen in terms of sales and margins has a, is a bit of speculation uh, because simply we don't we don't know what's going to happen. But right now, the trend that I've seen toward lower prices is somewhat troubling. Uh, and so I, I can even slide that back to the just a, what we were just talking about a second ago, the the canopy constellation acreage partnership. Yeah, branding things, making things the go-to thing on the shelf that people want regardless of the fact that it costs more than a generic equivalent, I believe is where 
real profits are going to be made in the industry. So simply producing marijuana is not all that complicated. And as a matter of fact, in many ways, the, the complication of making fancy strains has been, in my mind, somewhat exaggerated. But getting a thing, when you go to the grocery store and you're going to buy Coca-Cola, assuming you like Coca-Cola, even if you see the grocery store brand cola sitting next to it at a lower price, you generally buy the name brand one because you're so used to it. You know exactly what you're getting, you know how it's going to taste, and you're willing to pay a little bit of extra money, which adds up to a lot of extra money for the company Coca-Cola over all the people in the world that buy it because of that branding. Yeah. So right now, I don't think Aurora has any way to really capitalize on branding, whereas specifically Canopy, because of the partnerships they have, does. Where do we stand on other competitors who are going to roll out drinks? Wasn't it like Molson Coors or someone else was also going to get in yeah, there? Yeah, Molson Coors and Hexo. Okay. Uh, most of the drinks that I've seen that, that seem to be popular are smaller brands. Um, so there's, a, there's also a little bit, it, it, it's not totally unrelated to the branding aspect, that because there aren't dominant brands right now, dominant national or international brands, there aren't really very many barriers to entry for a smaller company as long as they have the production and uh, testing capabilities to make a beverage, they can become locally popular. And they actually often sell out quite a bit. People that can't get enough edibles and beverages so that the things that customers want to go buy are often out of stock simply because they can't produce them fast enough. And normally you think that's the greatest problem you can possibly have in a business is it is selling out faster than you can possibly make it. Um, but if it means that there are the market is so fragmented that there's hundreds or more of suppliers of little, essentially like microbrews with with beer, that people don't necessarily know outside their their own locality, that's not necessarily good for us as investors who want to buy the public shares of a company. It may be good for the business. It's not good for us buying public shares because we just don't have that many choices. Okay. Could Constellation and Canopy get like first in benefits here, at least in the U.S., because this is where they're rolling out the drinks first? Are we going to see that with them? Uh, well, but we're going to need legalization for that. So that's where that last acreage piece really becomes important. Because right now, neither Constellation nor Canopy, because they're listed on major exchanges, can actually sell marijuana products in the U.S. Right. We've got to put that third piece of the puzzle in before that happens. And like I said, if it, if it happens, that's going to be great okay. for, for those three companies specifically and for the industry as a whole. But we're waiting. And so if you don't mind, I, I'd actually we, there was one little piece of the political picture that we didn't quite get to that I was hoping to. Okay. Uh, and that's the possibility of a blue Senate. So I think that the whoever wins the presidential election is going to have fairly minimal impact on the growth of investable marijuana companies in the U.S. A Democratic Senate would have a massive impact. I think we would see legalization certainly within the first year. Uh, it would probably start with something like the Safe Banking Act, or we could just skip straight to the States Act or the MORE Act that are going to establish uh, a, a federal scheme for the legalization and distribution and sale of marijuana products. And then it, it, we're going to have, uh, there'll be so many opportunities, I'll be up all night looking. You will. So the plan that passed the House already, it was that a legalization, not just a decriminalization, right? That was already a legalization, right? Yes, very much so. And it was, it was fairly comprehensive. 
yeah. and provided for uh, specific tax revenues and with targeted uh, with places where the tax revenues were targeted to go. It was as comprehensive as you can get, and it was absolutely dead in the water in the Senate. Okay. They, the Republican-controlled Senate did not appear to have any motivation to push even a discussion or a vote on that, much less approve it. Right, right. Okay, well, that's what we'll all be watching this this November. Then is uh, you know a Democratic Senate. So if if we do get that in early November, like if that is known after you know a couple of days after the election when the votes are tallied, um, these stocks could really could really be soaring at that point. Don't you think? Absolutely. That that would be the the biggest single catalyst for a continued rally across the producers and pure plays that we have right now would be a Democratic Senate. The, okay. the certainty that the Democrats were going to control the Senate for the next two years, because then everything happens. Um, but also, uh, I'm going to just sort of bring this full circle, if you don't mind. We kind of started with state initiatives, yeah. and I'd like to get back to some of those state initiatives, because there are, although I said that it's a very small number of people that are totally affected by the state initiatives, there's some interesting things interesting things happening um, in several of them that may also give us a little bit of a window into what's going to happen for the next two years. So first is Arizona. Uh, Arizona just missed legalizing recreational marijuana in 2016. I think the vote was 51 to 49 or 52, 48. They're, they are almost there. And they are surrounded by states that already have legal marijuana. So it, it, for them, it's become a little bit silly to have California and Nevada and Colorado all sitting right there and they touch all three states and it's not legal. So they know that it's coming over the borders and more importantly, they know that they're not getting the tax revenue on it, that that's going to other states. Yeah. Uh, and we're gonna see that uh, sort of a similar thing in New Jersey. So I had always thought that New York was gonna be the next big state to fall and for a while it looked like they were going to be. And because of all sorts of things, not, not coronavirus, not the least of which, it's not going to be on the ballot in New York, but it is on the ballot in New Jersey. So that's about eight or nine million people, citizens. But the New Jersey is right next to the most populated parts of New York. So it's going to be just like Arizona and California. There, there would be nothing to keep people in New York from driving across the bridge and right. buying marijuana. Yeah. So in a retail store, in a totally legal format, it probably it won't be technically legal for them to bring it home but everyone's going to do it anyway. And New York's going to miss out on the revenue. New Jersey's going to get it. Yeah. So I think that those two states, Arizona and New Jersey, uh, which combined for more than 15 million people, really are, are, have been sort of backed into a corner. Even if people don't want it, it's starting to look silly not to have it. Yeah. Uh, then two more that are interesting. So Mississippi is basically just an additional uh, initiative, and it's fairly complicated. It involves a an extra clause that might make it even more complicated. So Mississippi to me doesn't matter all that much. Uh, Montana has a recreational initiative and they also have a plan to charge a flat 20% tax on retail sales. So that's high, but that might be exactly the kind of motivation that a fairly conservative state needs to go ahead with a, a broad scale legalization is Look at all the money that we can get from this. Right. So while I might have doubts about the sustainability of continuing to charge 20% tax on anything for an extended period of time, that could be the motivation. 
Okay. And then finally, South Dakota. Uh, I mentioned before that we have six initiatives on five state ballots, and that's because South Dakota has two. Uh, They're going with a recreational initiative and simultaneously, but not connected to it, a medicinal initiative. So obviously medicinal uh, votes have been a lot easier in the past. That's much, If only one were going to pass, it's much more likely that it's the medicinal initiative. Uh, but they're trying for both. And the recreational one has what I think is one of the most innovative uh, components so far in these. And that's that the change to the Constitution that would go into effect if the recreational ballot in South Dakota was approved is that it requires the state to give out a number of licenses with fairly specific language that says enough licenses to stamp out the black markets. And so while we've seen some places where it might be legal in your state, but counties and municipalities have been free to not make it legal in within their own jurisdictions, right. it, it can still be hard to get and that keeps the black markets thriving. So South Dakota has taken the fairly prescient step of, uh, or enlightened step of saying, if we're going to do this, we need to also make sure that we understand the entire retail market and we don't have a bunch of illegal activity as well. And we can make that happen inside the legislation. So I, I would love to see that one pass. That's going to be great. Okay. Do we have any polling on, on where those stand in South Dakota? I do not know about polling in South Dakota. My understanding is that the medicinal one is uh, pretty much a lock. And the recreational one is a crapshoot, but I can't back that up with recent poll numbers. Okay, then these are definitely ones that you know everybody should be watching on election night, seeing what's going on with these. Absolutely. Okay. But again, the, the Senate's going to be the big thing on election night or in the yeah right after the elections. Okay, then. Wow, there is a lot going on <laughs> with all the marijuana stocks right now. This is exciting. I feel like we're on the the verge of something here, possibly. I feel like it too. Uh, and I, I've been burned before. So again, okay. I'm tempering my enthusiasm. But yeah, we're, we're definitely getting closer. A lot of things are happening. Okay. And now I see why the stocks are getting this boost. Not, not to mention just Harris's comments, but if they think it's going to go blue on the Senate side, why not get in now? Because big things are coming down the down into 2021 if that happens. So exactly. Uh, so I'm going to reiterate, though, on, on that point that while, yes, if, if, if we had get a blue Senate, the stocks that we have right now are almost certainly going to rally hard starting yeah. as soon as that becomes clear. But the, for me, the more exciting thing will be down the road getting a lot more. Most of those companies are still Canadian at this point. So they may be able to get into the United States market then when it's legal, but th that's not a certainty getting a lot more companies that may already even be positioned well for the U.S. markets, but that are currently OTC stocks or private companies becoming public companies traded on the major exchanges. That's really going to be the important and exciting development a year, two, five down the road. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll still be here talking about it, hopefully, <laughs> um, <laughs> over the next couple of years, and we'll see where this shakes out. But I definitely will have you back on if the Senate does go blue I want you back on to talk about like all the implications next year when um, you know that new Congress takes takes uh, form formation in January, and then we'll see what happens. But yeah, lots lot is going to go on. We're going to need all your ideas when that's going on. 
Um, okay, let me recap some of the tickers that we talked about here. So there was Aurora Cannabis, ACB is the ticker there, Canopy Growth, CGC. Then we had uh, Kronos Group is C-R-O-N, Hexo is H-E-X-O. Um, in Innovative Industrial Properties, that's the REIT, is I-I-P-R. Uh, Constellation Brands, S-T-Z. Molson Coors is TAP, T-A-P. And I actually own Innovative Industrial Properties. I finally bought some for myself after I bought it in the Value Investor. Um, and I do like that income. So... I decided to go for it on that one. Do you own any of these, Dave, in your own portfolio? Uh, I don't own any of them personally uh, because of our trading restriction policies, but I do own uh, Innovative and Aurora and Canopy and Constellation in the Marijuana Innovators portfolio. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> All right. We'll be sure to tune in to that portfolio as well over the next couple of months, depending on what happens here. But either way, it looks like there's a lot going on on the state level still. And some of these companies are able to, you know, cash in on what's going on there. And then we'll see what happens at the federal level. But there's been such a big interest in the cannabis industry over the last five years with so many people wanting a way to invest in it. And that could be coming sooner than we think. So you're going to want to tune in. Don't miss a single episode of the Zach's Market Edge because we're going to cover everything as it changes in this growing industry. You can get us on SoundCloud. You can also get us on Spotify and we're on Apple Podcasts. And if you're in India, you can get us on Ghana now in India. But be sure to get us somewhere and I'll see you again next week with some more stocks. This material is being provided for informational purposes only, and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identify I've described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's investment research as a whole.